Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hey, man. It's hey, what's going on, everybody? How you doing, Pete? I'm doing good, man. Tired, but um, ready to do this. Been up since early, early flight, early flight. Yeah, I hate the way they do that. <laughs> All right. Well, so I'm Scott, and he's Pete. Y'all know this, or you wouldn't be watching right now because... Um, you must be following one or the both of us on Twitter to have known this was going to happen. Um, boy, I better tell the boys in the Reddit room or they're going to be pissed. Um, so it's the end of the empire. And um, it's a Libertarian Institute show. It's on our Libertarian Institute channel. Sarah says, I feel like Scott's always late. You know what? We were perfectly on time. I said, I just don't know how to work this thing. So I didn't know which button to hit. Otherwise, we were set. Um, so, yeah. Um, God dang. Uh, I am the director of the Libertarian Institute, and Pete, of course, is the managing editor, sitting in Will Griggs' chair. Uh-huh. And um, we're anti-government extremist types, basically. And, um, and yeah, so this is our new show, The End of the Empire. Um I think I have a little bit of a bias toward focus on foreign policy stuff, and 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 Pete likes covering the dissolution of the United States here in North America, and uh, so you know I think we got a lot to talk about. It should be interesting for people, uh, somewhat. Um, I was thinking, you know, you're such a firebrand, and I'm so old now that like, I'm older you, than you you really make you really make me seem you know, calm. And I was thinking one of the, the show could be called like an alternative title for the show could be thesis antithesis. Um, because then like, if we can get people to settle for a middle ground of somewhere between where I'm at and where you're at, then we'll be great. It, it'd be so, fine with me. It'd yeah. be a ton better than what we got right now. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if you know that anecdote where it's in the movie and the, it's in the autobiography of Malcolm X where he's at this event with Coretta Scott King and they're it's they're all talking to a bunch of white liberals in the northeast somewhere or something and he goes listen I know you don't like me something like this but I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna scare the hell out of them and then when I'm done they're gonna be eating out of your hand get it and she goes oh okay and so he gets up there and is like any means necessary raw and and the crowd is like oh my god and then Coretta Scott King gets up there and it's like you know we'd like a little bit of respect and they're like we can give you that we got respect <laughs> you know um so you know I think uh we'll play it like that you know you just you'd be sure. mad as hell and I'll be mad as heck and we'll we'll get it just right you know well I did something last night that you've done before get your hand out of my podcast that's fucking funny. <laughs> I'm sorry uh what now I did something last night that, that you've done before. Oh, yeah, the Tim Pool show. So that's what I was going to ask you. You mentioned you're traveling there. I yeah. saw the whole episode, stayed up late na- last night watching the whole thing. And um, I thought you did great, man, at the part where you were allowed to participate in the deal. Um, well, it, well, it was one of those things, you know, it's like Tim, his whole audience is right. And Tim leans right. Even Ian's going, leaning right nowadays. And then they have a friggin' right winger on. Right. You know, who's running, you know, run. And I'm like, I'm going to have to be the best right winger in the room. Yep. And I think I did it. Yeah, I think you're great on it. And then, 
you know, especially I was a little frustrated, like, ah, oh, man, I really wish that uh, they would let him talk more, <laughs> ask you some questions. Well, Tim, Tim went on some rants. You know, Tim, yeah, Tim went on some rants. Well, and, and that really is the form. It's, it's his not, show. It's not an interview show, right? Like, you're not really there to be interviewed. You're there to also be part of the same discussion that he's already having, whether you show up or not, which is fine. It's just different. It's, you know, it's not, you're not there to be interviewed, really. It's just, uh, it's a different thing than that. But, um, you know, I thought it was great. And, um, you know, I don't know that you and I are 100% on all this culture war stuff as it stands right now, but I don't care about that, man. You know, all I care about is foreign policy and, from my point of view, did you I, did the best did job okay ever. China? Yeah, I mean, did I you, do okay on China? Yeah, you did great. I mean, this is exactly, you know, I mean, whatever. the The rule always is be yourself, right? But I'm just saying, in effect, the way it all came out was hate the left, hate the left, hate the left, hate the left for an hour and fifty minutes, and then ten minutes of I ain't afraid of no China, which is just perfect. And I, you know, I think. When I, when I went on there and said, I ain't afraid of no China, the audience was like, this guy's a communist. They, and it didn't matter that I was just citing Pat Buchanan saying we shouldn't have saved the Soviet Union or <laughs> whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. This guy's a red. Just look at him. But, you know, I think you did a great job of establishing how red you ain't before it got to that part, which was just the very end part of the conversation there. And then, yeah, I think you're great. And I don't think you could do better than to cite David Stockman. Um, you know, David Stockman is notably bearish on everything all the time, but that doesn't mean he's wrong. You know, he might be a little bit early on some of his calls, but whether everything is going to hell the way he says is never in doubt, you know? And, um, so yeah, no, I thought it was great. And, you know, for the people who missed it, I mean, tell them about it. What happened there? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was just a lot of culture war stuff and, um, you know, it was fine. I was... I don't have any problem um, getting into that. And we talked some about COVID and everything. And then I brought up the fact that, you know, when I was, um, when I was sick that I, I took ivermectin and he, and just so this doesn't get taken down, um, it's not approved for COVID to cure, uh, to treat COVID. But that's what he, I think he freaked out a little bit about that. And, you know, understood he makes a lot of money off of those, uh, off of those live streams and everything. And he just wanted to make sure that everything was, um, you know, everything was above board and that he, he covered his butt. So I'm cool. Yeah. I was cool with it. I had a great time and, um, hopefully they'll just, um, invite me back soon. And, um, you know, on the China stuff was what was funny was I, you know, you would send me all those Stockman articles and, you know, I'm, I'm reading one Stockman article after another. And then the day before, like Tuesday, Ryan McMakin writes an article for Mises.org mm -hmm. and they put it out in audio form. And it's about this book that some Harvard Warhawk wrote called Unrivaled in 2018, where he just goes down like statistics and um, like all this demographic stuff about why China is not to why you don't have to worry about China. Mm -hmm. And it's only like 17 minutes long. So I just downloaded it. And on the, on the plane, I was just listening to it over and over again. So like most 90% of the, the um, I would say 70% of what I spewed would just came right out of that podcast. Yeah. right out of that article because it was uh you know and, and i made a point to say this guy's not a realist this guy's not anti-war this yeah. guy's a hawk 
Right. And you know, he says, don't worry about China. Yeah. And, you know, um, I actually didn't read that McMacken article. I can't wait to get my hands on that. Um, but there was an article that they ran at Mises. Um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the guy's name. I even interviewed him about it. Mullen was his last name. Uh, uh, Solus Mullen, something like that. And, and he wrote a thing about essentially China's already an overextended empire, man. What are they going to do? They're going to bite off India or something? In fact, when we were at I mean, Freedom Fest, one of, one of my new friends I made at Freedom Fest pointed out that like they had this border dispute in the Himalayas. And they were all ordered. You know, the commanders ordered the men to all throw down their rifles. And they went over there and had a big fist fight. You know? And they essentially, I'm not sure who kicked whose ass, but they didn't shoot each other. Because they're just in no position to, who are they going to take on? You look at, and in fact, when I, I, also at Freedom Fest, I did a panel there that was moderated by Grover Norquist. And one Uh of the points that he made, he says, man, you look at China and they're surrounded by, you know, not necessarily enemies, but certainly people who are, who do not feel like taking any shit from them whatsoever. And liabilities. Like North Korea is a liability to have on your border. Yeah, absolutely. But like. You know, even both Koreas don't want to lose their independence to China, have no, you know, intention of being dominated by China. Uh, Japan and, you know, obviously uh, Vietnam and and, uh, Laos and Cambodia and Thailand. They had a border skirmish with Vietnam in 2004. uh, There were border skirmishes between 2014 and 2015 with Vietnam that there were firefights. Yeah. When they've they've invaded Vietnam over and over again, like over the centuries. So the Vietnamese are really nationalist and anti-Chinese in that sense, which don't want to screw up your domino theory or anything here, boys. But the Vietnamese had no intention of just being the puppets of Mao Zedong whatsoever. But anyway, um, but then, you know, you know, India and Pakistan and Mongolia, right, like. It doesn't make sense if you are running things in Beijing to think, yeah, we're gonna. What we're gonna do is we're gonna invade and dominate Pakistan. Like, no, you're not. They're friends with Pakistan. That's an entirely, you know, alien culture and civilization to theirs. It makes no sense to think they're gonna do that. Or even, like, I don't know exactly the the ledger on it, but like, what would it cost for them to roll in and and invade and conquer Outer Mongolia? You know, at least tens of billions of dollars to do that and then to what profit and with what kind of long-term you know insurgency and other problems that they're going to have to deal with and like wouldn't it just be worth it to do business with the mongolians you know what i mean mean, just like that's probably the most likely problem would be their invasion of taiwan and like not to channel doug bondo or anything too much but just that doesn't sound like my problem to me you know i'm sorry but that's just not within america's national interests you know they talk about it like it's hawaii but it ain't you know i mean but there's so there's like so many factors you know that that stat about how 30 percent of the farming in china is still either done by hand or animal that's insane when it's yeah. less than one percent in the united states right. i mean that's just that's nuts and i didn't know about the diabetes and it's not because they're fat. It's because their diets are terrible. And like the average person who lives in Shanghai is breathing in 40 cigarettes a day. I mean, these, and forget about all that. Look what they've done to their currency. I mean, in 25 years, they've 
destroyed the current their currency more than the United States has with the Federal Reserve in 108 years. Right. I mean, their 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 um, debt to GDP already matches the United States. Right. And it could be past it. It could be past it at this point because that book was written in 2018, and right. it's not getting better. Their second biggest mortgage company, Evergrande, their their bonds were just their bonds were trading at 50 percent. Now they're they were just taken. They were just considered Man, to be. You know, I really wonder about that. Like, can they have like a total unraveling of their real estate market that that their government can't intervene and prop up? That's just going to completely come apart like ours did in two thousand eight, kind of thing. I mean, it could well, be, you know. I mean, Evergrande could be their Lehman, but if you understand that everything there is basically a lease. So like Evergrande owns, from what I understand, Evergrande owns property that if you took four Manhattans, it's like the size of four Manhattans in the country itself. And it's really a lease. So they really own it. But anyone who lives on is sort of leasing it. And um, but I, the way I would assume, like, so if they're if that bank goes out of, goes out of business, I mean, people who are investors around the world. I mean, they're not stupid. They're not scared of China. They're not scared that they're going to get, you know, someone's going to show up on their doorstep and put a bullet in their head. You know, they're going to pull their money out. And I mean, you could see, you could see a 2008 happen. Now they could prop it up by just, well, I mean, the one way they're, how would they prop it up? Just go back to the cultural revolution, go back to Mao times. And that's what the article you shared with me, I actually clicked through the link and actually read the manifesto. That manifesto, and that's just nuts. I mean, that's just pure nationalism. Yeah, you mean uh, Xi's new declaration of, you know, all the new inward turning stuff. Um, I don't know if or that was Xi. I don't know who. I don't remember who it was who did it, but um, you sent it, and it was that one article that was called. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what it was in China on the China on the cusp of a pr- profound transformation, and that was Asia Times, and then. When you click through to the the hardline commentary, and let me get the English version, um, by Li Guangmin Binjin, everyone can feel that a profound change is underway, and he just immediately starts going after the culture, starts going after the femboy culture, all these you know, feminine men on TV, and how much money they're making how I'm talking how much about an arms the, build up to face down the united states is you know i think a big part of it too yeah but that was but really when you read it I, that's like this much of it everything else is internal mm-hmm. you know, so i mean the united states i mean the how would the united states even think about making a move on china i mean that would be the dumbest thing i mean they when, especially if you understand geography yeah <laughs> yeah you know, people you know even, you know, Americans, too, just as bad probably as anybody, have faith in central planning that, like, yeah. you know, they have so much power to wield over their people to make things the way that they want. Like, one thing that you could argue that they can do that we won't tolerate, right, is our massive infrastructure projects. Like, we want to completely yeah. remake this bay or we want to build, you know, a huge industrial, you know, part of a city and just, you know get it all set up and then let people fill it in later and these kind of huge government investments um you know massive train projects 
and stuff like that, where they don't give a damn about eminent domain. They'll do whatever they want, you know? Hmm. And so some of those things could probably be, you know, profitable in the long term, probably, like some of the infrastructure stuff that they do. Um, and yet, at least in the in the larger, you know, the biggest businesses, and because I hear, you know, contrary to this on the smaller level, in fact, I think it was you that interviewed that guy that just come back from China. Talking about how free their economy was, like on the lower level, somebody just wants to go into yeah, business, yeah. they leave you alone. But for mm -hmm. the biggest firms, I mean, all the decisions that they make are political decisions. And, you know, it could be that this is just, you know, libertarian bias kind of point of view, but I just think it's really right that essentially, even if it can be made up for somehow or another. Essentially, any government intervention in the economy is a distortion and is screwing things up from the way things would be if they would stay out of it and, and well, probably, you know, for the worse. And so when you have an economy as political as theirs, well, look at how political ours is and how screwed up our economy is. It's because all these choices are being made by people who it's not their capital being invested. So they don't give a damn, you know. Well, right. Right wingers and even libertarians have to understand that, you know, they what's one of the main libertarian memes, you know, um, you know, common that wasn't real communism. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, if this was real and communism never works, well, if this is real communism, it's going to fall apart. What are you scared of? Right. Yeah. I never, yeah. It's like, okay, a dying, a dying animal, a dying prey animal can be dangerous as they're dying. But sure. China seems more like the if they started if everything started falling apart there, I think they're going to lash out inward, just like they've done in the past. They always punish their own people. Yeah, and that's a that's a long history well, look, of that. I mean, okay, like let's say best case scenario that you know they get as more and more free market as they can for the betterment of their people that they can, and their GDP continues to grow and even outpace ours. They do have a billion people. We got three hundred million. And they have a, an economy that's much more geared toward manufacturing and all of that. So let's say that they started making really smart decisions and making more money. Okay, still, how long is that going to take them to build a world empire to threaten us, presuming that they would want any such thing? And, you know, I'm not an expert on Chinese culture and whatever, but everything I know about it says that they consolidated their empire a couple of thousand years ago and don't have much interest in expansion to the, you know, east or west or any other thing. And it, well, everybody know. wants to talk about the Belt and Road. You know, and if they don't have, if their economy is falling apart, that's going to fall apart. I mean, that's that's probably one of their the most expensive projects they'll ever undergo. Right. And yeah, and who even says that's going to be profitable, right? Like that's the kind of thing where, and probably like only a politician could imagine that here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a road all the way to Lisbon and it's going to pay off eventually, man. <laughs> that might take a hundred years, you know, but then the other thing with that too is right. They want to build the belt and road. They're going to have to kiss everybody's ass all the way to Lisbon. They can't be the Chinese red army rolling through Central Asia and picking a fight with every person in their own homeland, trying to get, you know, even to far Eastern Europe. I mean, we're talking 10,000 miles or something across that thing. So, you know, the idea that they're going to just, you know, build this giant militarist empire and, and 
make all this money with it. It just doesn't seem right to me. You know, look at how much money we've just blown. And when we talk about the $10 trillion cost of the terror war, isn't that recognized as just a total loss? We don't say, we made $10 trillion on the terror war. No, we spent $10 trillion. You know, some asshole got a McMansion in northern, you know, north, uh, eastern Virginia there, whatever it is. But that doesn't translate out to the rest of us whatsoever. So, you know, I, it's fun to be scared. And the yellow perils are a great one. And, hey, there's a billion of them. And so, like, just use your imagination, Pete, what you could do with that many men if you had an yeah, it imagination, was, you know? And it was such a status question that set me off yesterday. I guess someone super chatted and said, well, you know, the United States can't break up and secede because then China would be, you know. Um, oh, right. I forget what they said. Um, yeah, I forget who take they said. Eat our lunch right. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, would come right. I mean, and you hear that? I hear, I hear libertarians say that. And when a libertarian says that, to me, the argument is their argument is, well, we can only have Ancapistan, and it has to be all the way around the world. And what does that sound like? That sounds like the objectivist who basically, when you yeah. when you break down their whole uh, ideology, it turns into a one world government. Yeah, so, and this is where the liberventionists were, you know, with the Iraq war. Was, no, you can't have freedom in one country. Oh, yeah. No, but you can have freedom in your one country once you're done overthrowing the entire rest of the world through warfare. You know, man, are you going to be free at the end of that? Give me a break, you, man. You know, you can't you can't have one free country. Switzerland en enters the chat. Yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. And. And look at the counterfactual. And, you know, I mean, it is um, September 11th. It's a Saturday. I'm going to be in D.C. doing this big protest about it. And you had the fall of the Afghan, you know, regime that America had propped up there for 20 years, you know, right at this time. You get a lot of people doing some hard reflection, I think, about it. it's kind of unavoidable, right? They're like, man, what are we doing? Yeah. 20 years. And to kill 400 guys. You know, like there's yeah. just I understand how caught up people were in it at the time. But, man, there ain't no way to look back at what happened and not just understand that Bush exploited people's panic and fear in order to get away with expanding this massive ulterior agenda into the Middle East. And, the, you know, as I say, the, the truthers might as well have been right that Dick Cheney did it because Dick Cheney might as well have done it. Same damn difference to the degree to, you know, for the degree to which they exploited it to get all that done. And I'm hearing guys who guarantee were hawks then who are saying now, like, when it would be easy for them to just say, oh, Biden screwed up the withdrawal, are saying, what did we fight for? You know, yeah. I saw, did you see this guy on uh, Tucker Carlson, Joe Kent, right wing America yeah, no. first guy running for uh, Congress in Washington state? And he's the perfect example of what I'm talking about. He's running as a Republican. And he's a combat veteran. And he's up there and he's mad as hell about Biden botching the withdrawal the way that he botched it. And then he says, and, and Tucker, they've been lying to us this whole time. They said it was worth it to, for us to spend our buddies' lives on this project to build up this government and this army. And then the whole thing just vanishes in the blink of an eye like this. I mean, they were lying to us, you know, and um, 
and took it hard. And then Carlson set him up and goes, well, isn't it a shame that there's never, ever, 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 ever going to be accountability? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, there is too, goddammit, because I'm going to win for Congress and the Republicans are going to win the Congress. And we're going to have an investigation, not just into the withdrawal of Afghanistan, but into the entire war on terrorism, Tucker. And we're going to investigate Iraq War Two also because they lied us into that. And everybody knows it. They lied us into that, too. And it's time for a real reckoning. It's time for real accountability. After 20 years of because, you know, you had guys who fought in both wars and they were like, well, Iraq sure went to hell with the rise of the Islamic State and all of that. But in Afghanistan, we've made some real progress. You know, now you got that big round number 20 staring you in the face. I mean, 20 years. The wars could drink. You know, the wars are like a man now. You know, you got people who weren't born yet or were babies, like infants, who were deployed to Afghanistan, who were, you know, infants when the uh, war began. Um, this kind of craziness. And so people are looking back and they're just, you know, it seems like it's a great opportunity for us to really drive home that, you know, all this militarism is just a bunch of crap. You don't have to believe in it at all. None of it's true at all. You know, all this panic about China, it's not about China rising to become the unipolar power in the world. It's about the relative decline of American power. Because, one, the rest of the world was getting richer and was coming to equal America in wealth and influence anyway. And then Bush decided to blow our entire wad of everything that we had saved up in the Middle East. Well, we're already in debt, $10 trillion by then anyway. Um, but, you know, him and I'm not letting Obama and Trump off the hook, but I'm just saying it was Bush who did all this, um, who kicked the pile over over there. And, um, and then, so yeah, so then that means our imperial collapse and decline and retreat is happening sooner than it otherwise would have. And then, so like a spoiled child, they're lashing out and blaming everybody else and saying, yeah, this, you know, it's China that did this. You know, I was talking with a friend earlier. He said he's just trolling this right wing friend. So the CCP financed 9-11 and his buddy goes, Really? I mean, show me some articles like that. And he goes, dude, that's bullshit. I just made it up. <laughs> or he goes, no, it's not true. And the guy says, well, don't just dismiss it until you've really looked into it. <laughs> and he goes, dude, I just made it up just now just to mess with you, dude. Look how bad you want to believe in this stuff. You know, it's just, yeah. um, you, you know, so what if come to the realization, like how shocking would it be? Think of it. Like, what if the American empire fell and then no power even tried to rise to replace it? Because how could they? The Chinese wouldn't dream of being able to afford such a thing. Japan, yeah, they had their empire. Didn't end so well for them. The Europeans, they're completely spent. They're on America's dole. And so even the EU all combined couldn't embark on an imperial project the likes of which America has tried to get away with for the last 30 years and 20 years. And so, yep. like, what might that look like? What if, what if Dave Smith won the presidency and just said, look, it's a multipolar world now. Who cares? And then that's all it was. What if it was not a bipolar world between us and China or a unipolar world under Chinese imperial domination? What if it was a world of sovereign nation states, you know? And all, you know, with 
their relative power being essentially based on their economic power. America and our European friends and the Japanese, uh, you know, leading with the Indians and the the Brazilians and whatever kind of middle rank powers slowly catching up. And then, you know, what else do you expect? What are they going to do? Russia, China, and Europe are all going to gang up against us? I got a big map on my wall right here. You know, China's huge. But compared to the rest of Asia, it ain't that huge, right? Like, if you were running China, you would not be looking at a map of Eurasia and going, oh, yeah, that'll be easy. We're just going to bite off all that and chew it. Like, no, you're not. During, yeah, you and know? do it during winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're going straight to <laughs> Moscow. It's going to be fine, you know? People do this all the time, you know? So, oh, man. so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's it. And then, you know, as far as, you know, dissolving the United States, I'm a good ANCAP uh, like the rest of us here. But, you know, the reality is that if we had anything like a consensus for going by the Constitution, then we'd be 95% of the way to anarcho-capitalism anyway. And the degree of decentralization of power among the 50 states, count them, five zero states, that's a lot. And if we just had, if that'd be a great start if we could get back to de-emphasizing D.C. and decentralizing power here in the country, you know, political power, and then just let people be. And again, with the counterfactual, just think if we hadn't spent the last 30 years doing this. Just think if since the end of the Cold War, you'd had Ron Paul and Harry Brown and libertarians in charge this whole time to just Americans even Pat, to even get Pat rich Buchanan as glorious. And a couple of, and even yeah. Pat Buchanan and a couple of the paleos. Yeah. Yeah, even Buchanan and a couple of the paleos. I mean, how many tariffs on China are they really going to rack up? Not enough to ruin everything, you know? And then, and just think, that $10 trillion that they blew on the terror wars, just think of all that was just invested instead. Invested and then reinvested and then reinvested. And all that brain power, all those man hours, and all of the muscle power, right? All those infantrymen could have been lifting heavy things, doing important work. And all the engineers buried down in the basement of the Pentagon, drawing a new gun and then crumpling it up and then drawing another one. When these guys could be helping humanity advance and providing goods and services to people at lower and lower prices. Um, and so, you know, it ain't utopia, but man, the counterfactual is so much better than this. And then that means that going forward, it could be too. That like really doesn't have to be this way. It never did. And it doesn't have to now. And like, you know, re you really succeed in decentralizing power to such a great degree. We might even find we don't even have anything to hate about each other so much anymore. You know, I did see you made a great point last night about, you know, Dallas is full communism and Fort Worth are, you know, right wing MAGA hat guys. And these are like the twin cities right there next to each other. These two gigantic cities, uh, obviously Dallas bigger, but still, um, you know, right there. They can't really secede from each other. They're going to stay part of Texas, you know, uh, for the indefinite future. But just the question is, how many things do the, these different populations get to decide for each other? And how much of their decision is based on home rule? And, and you know, I know you've seen The Patriot, that Mel Gibson movie, where he's like, why should I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? Right? Like, local control doesn't necessarily buy you liberty, but it buys you a fighting chance at it. 
right? It buys you the ability to team up with your buddies and go down there and at least have your say and, and participate in the process in a way that you can get some mileage there, even though the lady next door, you know, Karen might be worse than Joe Biden by a hundred times if she gets a chance to get at you. You know what I mean? It just depends on, on the situation. But so I wanted to, you know, ask you about that because I know that you've been focusing a lot more lately on kind of local libertarian politics. And this is something that I think probably doesn't get as much attention as part of the uh, Mises caucus narrative that the Mises caucus, of course, Dave is the big star and we're going to run him for president. And that whole thing is going to be badass. But we're trying to get thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of libertarians to join the Mises caucus and the libertarian party, not just to support Dave, but to bring a whole new generation of libertarians into the party so that they can use it for local political purposes. And, you know, I'm not exclusivist about the LP at all. Um, you know, there are plenty of avenues and ways to um, to go about, you know, local politics. Obviously, the Free State Project is doing a great job up in New Hampshire. Of, You know, I think, um, oh, you were gone by the time I got there. But when I went to Porkfest, I got some great talking to's by some people about how well that they have been doing and the percentage of the power that they hold. I think they hold a solid majority in the state house. Um, and the, the house speaker is like a fellow traveler, not really one of them, but is pretty good. I think they said, but they've got, I think they said they have the majority of the Republican seats in, in the state mm -hmm. house there. So yeah, they all run but anyway, Republican. so, so yeah, I just wanted to hear from you about like, what are your ideas about all of that? And if you have ideas, especially for like the future of the Mises caucus, once Dave runs, well, not just once he runs, but on the way to him running, there's a lot of work to be done. And then once he runs, then what, you know? Yeah. Well, here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Um, today they, Bernie, from weekend at Bernie's, they brought him out to the podium and he announced that any co any company that has more than a hundred, a hundred or more employees, they're going to mandate a vaccine. I them. saw that today. And, I mean, and Abbott, Abbott already said this isn't happening. Oh, know? did he? So yeah, a Abbott already is like, this, is, this isn't happening. We haven't heard anything from DeSantis yet, but I'm sure DeSantis is going to say the same thing. And it's not local politics, it's state politics, but it's federalism. Yeah, it, you know it's better. It's better than what we have now, and you know I just honestly believe that at the local level is the best way to push back. Is you and your people in your town, especially if you're in a small town, uh, a small town. I mean, like four or five of you could run everything. Could be all the influence. You know, as long as you're impressive people and you're not, you know, right. You know, showing up drunk and stuff like that, high as balls. Well, except you, you do really well. Um, the um, got a high tolerance man the um but yeah so i mean it's like i think i said this last night is yeah if you if you have the atf or you have the dea coming in and they don't have and you've told your sheriffs to stand down or even better tell them don't let them in meet them you know meet them at the you know meet them at the border of the town what are they going to do I mean, these aren't, we know from Michael Bolden, these aren't high, they don't have high budgets, you know, so, and they're not going to start printing money to do this. I mean, they're, they're just not, I mean, there, there'll be enough people, there are enough people who've already said, I'll take the vaccine anyway. And so I think really when it comes down to it, you take over 
decide you're going to take over your town council, get a couple people elected, do it however you have to do it. Um, a lot of those positions, you don't have to declare Republican or Democrat. Right. And then, you know, like my friend Andrew from Popular Liberty has this idea of setting up just like the Nordic, the Nordic countries have sovereign wealth funds um, to for like, um, I think Norway's is like their social security fund is in so a sovereign wealth fund where they have like everybody theoretically has a million dollars if they if they retired at this point they invested it mostly in oil in their oil um in their oil industry and so you get a couple people in there and you just push this i mean this it's a nice little idea it plays really well to right wingers you're telling them hey we're going to cut taxes um it's going to allow you to it's going to be something that you can dip into for spending and you won't have to tax people and then you just you go with this and then you just start building upon that and building upon that. And I think once people, I think the problem with local politics is, is that people don't want to get, they, they don't think it matters. And terms like, you know, there is a reason why phrases like all politics is local are important. And yeah, I mean, I just see that really it's the only way to, I mean, if they really got tyrannical and they were like, okay, we're going to pick a couple towns to send people, you know, we're going to, we're going to um, make an example out of a couple towns and we're going to march in there and say, hey, look, you have to take this vaccine. I mean, they're not going to choose blue towns, blue towns that are mostly blue are already probably mostly vaccinated. Yeah. They're going to pick red. And I mean, that's when, you're going to see, you probably see solidarity guy contacted me the other day, um, right outside of Boise and, um, was telling me that they wanted to do the school district, wanted to do mask mandates for the kids. And like so many people showed up, they couldn't fit in the auditorium to, to protest it and just said, no, this is not happening. And they said, well, okay. So if you don't want your, if you want your kids to be exempt from masks, show up tomorrow and fill out this form and everything. And like, he said he thought that people who were actually for the mask mandate actually showed up to sign it. Just he said it seemed like most of the people who were, um, you know, who had kids there showed up to sign it. It's just going to be something local, man. I think that that is the best way to fight. I mean, we, yeah, we know that we know the 202 area code. Yeah. I mean, how much of a dent can you make in it? I mean, Ron Paul was there for how long? The thing is, yeah. too, is. You know, they're so caught in their bubble of righteousness, too, that they can't imagine how bad they look and how much backlash is coming. Like, if you look at all the discussion of how blacks and Mexicans voted for Donald Trump in higher numbers in 2020 than they did in 2016. And nobody on TV, when they talked about that fact, nobody said, well, it's because of the lockdowns, man. Democrats have the reputation. You're the lockdown party. And the Republicans are less worse on that. I got a buddy of mine who's you know a regular guy with a regular job so i'm voting i'm pulling the handle for all republicans man save my ass from these democrats and their lockdowns that's all i care about i care about one thing only there's we gotta stop these goddamn democrats man forget it and trump really muddled the message right trump was like i'm the lockdown leader and i i lock down better than anybody i'm the lockdown thing and so he kind of stepped on his own feet doing that but Still, overall, that was the message was like there was a push to the right. Um, the margin, as Hillary Clinton would have said, like, why am I not ahead by 50 points or whatever? The margin could have been much bigger 
after the, you know, just chaos and destabilization of the Trump years, as much as people hated the Clintons, um, it wasn't Hillary running against him, you know, but that was a huge, um, you know, detriment to the Democrats. I think we're going to see in the midterms and in the general coming up, there's going to be a huge backlash to the right against the Democrats and their push for all these lockdowns and all this stuff. And they're so sure they're right that they're just not listening to people tell them that, like, man, this has gone too far. It's just not going to work. And, like, look at the way that they pretend that anyone who refuses a vaccine are all a bunch of idiot right-wing Republican rednecks when that's just not true. You know, it's poor people and poor black people are a huge part of the demographics of people who don't trust government medicine. You know, people always pretend, and it's true, like, on the activist level, there are a lot of black socialist leaders and, and you know, radical leaders. But for, mo for the most part, American blacks are not socialists. They're right-wing Democrats. You know, they voted for Hillary and Biden over Bernie Sanders in the last two elections in the primaries. And they're terrified of government medicine because they're not stupid. <laughs> you know, they've lived through the bad end of government medicine. And, you know, Tuskegee is not just like an old wives tale or something. That's real. You know, they let these guys believe that they were being treated for syphilis for decades without doing anything about it. And then when it comes to like putting plutonium in retarded kids or oatmeal or, you know, with all the yeah. crazy government experiments, they do that to poor black people. That's who they can get away with doing it to, you know, and black prisoners. And so, yeah, guess who's not getting the vaccine? And they're like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to set up this system just like with their gun control. Right. They like to imagine that it's right wing rednecks are going to be are going to receive the brunt end of all of this. But it's not who's going to receive it. It's their own constituency who are going to be, you know, on the shit end of this. And I just don't know. I mean, I saw the I didn't see Biden's speech today, but I saw, you know, people talking about it. And I just I have no idea what they're thinking that they're going to do that. I mean, you're talking about tens of millions of people now that the government's going to force them out of their jobs. Are you kidding me? Like Jim Bovar was like, dude, this is a declaration of war against 80 million Americans. Are you insane? Now, what do they expect to be the backlash from this? Which brings me back to on your local thing. Seems to me, you know, not the baby boomers. I'm not talking about them. They're the same ones from the Bush years. But the millennial right wingers are much more libertarian and and are the kinds of people who I don't expect to be impressed by a lot of right-wing culture war crap in terms of, like, the war on pot and things like that. I don't, I don't imagine them being very impressed by arguments that we got to keep up the SWAT raids over kids smoking grass and shit like that. When, and especially when they're coming, you know, of age and, and will be coming to power in a time like you're describing where this just an absolute emergency of personal liberty like this. And so, you know, I'm with you and I think, and you know, libertarians are not right wingers. It's different, but we ain't leftists either. And, um, and by the way, the leftists aren't liberals either. And, and, you know, I think on the, in the scheme of things, I like to see a real poll, but I bet real leftists are a very small percentage of people on the left side of the political spectrum you know most people are, over there are just liberals and progressives and like real leftists they're really good on a lot of stuff a lot of the times and and you know it'll if you had to flip a coin on a liberal 
or a leftist and what their position would be on lockdowns and, and vaccine mandates and stuff, the leftists, I think, would be better than the liberals. You know, the liberals yeah. meaning more like Democrats, more like Hillary Clinton types versus, you know, look at somebody like Max Blumenthal and Glenn Greenwald who are to the left of the progressives. Um, and, and they're really backlashing against all this medical tyranny stuff, you know. And seriously, like, how many leftists are getting red-pilled on medical socialism by this right now, too? They're like, you know, as libertarians, we, we're too hard on them, man. We think that they're all too far gone or something like that. But how obvious is the argument that, man, we shouldn't have an FDA or a CDC at all. We shouldn't be listening to these people. They should not be in charge of making these decisions for other people. And look at like the nightmare in England where they have the NHS, where it's one set of decision makers for the medical life of every person in the nation and where they make terrible decisions, right? Like no matter the circumstances, you're not allowed to go hold your mom's hand as she dies when she doesn't have COVID and you don't have COVID. But that's just our our rules for the hospital and, you know, whatever it is, just crazy stuff, the way that they've done it. And it seems like a great opportunity for libertarians to say to leftists kind of gently, not like, ha ha, told you so, but like, hey, guys, there's a real reason to doubt that putting the U.S. federal government in charge of all of our health care is actually a good idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? And people say, well, we just want single payer. But you pay the piper, you call the tune. That's how that goes. And you see how quick the liberals are to say, yeah, we should withhold treatment from people who didn't get the vaccine. You know, we should triage all of them and make them all go to the back of the line. They'll turn like that on a dime. They'll withhold your treatment from you for crossing them. Just like a Soviet commissar, right? For making a, a, a decision that they disapprove of. And if, it's, and if they can do that to you over refusing the vaccine, then they can do that to you for being too fat. Oh, well, you shouldn't be eating donuts. You go to the back of the line. You shouldn't be smoking cigarettes. You go to the back of the line. Whereas in a capitalist economy, you got money? Come on in. You know, you want to pay fee for service? You get treatment. And none of this, some other commissar deciding whether you've jumped through all their, you know, hoops or not yet. You know? Look at this meme. Look at this meme. What do you got? Can you see, can you see this meme? Mm, oh, here. Add to stream. There it goes. I'm new at this stuff. Oh, hell, I can't see it. Hang on, let me supersize it. That's a great, th that's a great meme. Yep. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, so look, I, you know, when, when they first came out with this vaccine passport stuff, I, I think I told you and I told Dave, this is never going to fly. They can't do this because it's too hard. It's too unfair on racial minorities, which is, you know, a huge democratic constituency. And it's just, you know, it's all like upper middle class white liberals who think that this is all okay. And I'm just waiting for the moment when reality comes crashing down on them. And they realize that this is electorally prohibitive, that this is just, you know, again, like with the gun control, you imagine that you're bossing white rednecks out in the countryside around, but that's not who your, your, your policies actually target. And, um, I think unlike with gun control, it's just too many masses of people all at once that they're going to come up against here. And I got to admit that, I mean, hell, it should never have gotten to this point, right? It should have been never anywhere near this point. Um, and it's amazing that it, that it is this bad. I kind of thought, and I guess the Delta, you know, coming in, in giant waves has kind of messed this up too. 
But I was thinking by the time of my debate with Bill Crystal that they'd be repealing these restrictions because things would just be getting better and better. Um, but it doesn't look like well, that's going to happen in time for that. Well, when you consider it's a bunch of libertarians, they may just walk through the door. Yeah. I wonder what's going to happen with that, which, by the way, if people I think if you go look at the page, it says you have to have the vaccine. But that's not true. But you do have to have a PCR test from within a day saying that you're negative to get in there, which is unfortunate. And under any other circumstances, I wouldn't participate. But, you know, um, Gene Epstein has gone far out of his way to give me this opportunity to debate Bill Crystal. I got to do it no matter what. But. Um, and, you know. The thing is, with the hospital rooms, this is a big thing, too. Remember, 15 days to flatten the curve was so they could expand ICU capacity so that the hospitals aren't overwhelmed and we don't have to triage people in the parking lots and all that. Well, that was a year and a half ago, almost. And they're out of capacity. And right now, you know, the wife was just telling me about she has a friend who her father has kidney problems, nothing to do with COVID. And he needs, like, severe dialysis right now. And he can't get a hospital room anywhere in Central Texas. In fact, he can't get a hospital room anywhere. And she said that they called her and said, come and say goodbye. They can't treat him because they got nowhere to put him because the hospitals are absolutely jam-packed with people right now. Um, and so, like, one, yeah, that's a pretty bad Delta wave going through. But two, what the hell happened to expanding ICU supply? And, of course, we know what the answer is, right? The answer is medical fascism. The answer is the insurance companies and the hospital companies have these certificate of need laws in almost all the states, I think it's like 40 out of 50, that make it a crime to compete with another hospital in your area. So people want to come and open up a new treatment center of any kind, and they can't. And so you'd have to, you know, get the state legislature to pass an exception for you to allow you to do it kind of thing. It's like car dealerships. You know, like, who comes up with this crap? You have to buy a car. If you want a new car, you have to get it from a dealer. You can't just buy it from whatever company that people can come up with to distribute cars. It has to be set up this way. It's all as a matter of law. So here we are a year and a half into the epidemic, and they got people who don't have COVID who are being triaged and dying because people who do have COVID, vaccinated or not, are taking up all the beds. And, and you can't open up a hospital across the street. You and all your millionaire investor friends want to try to compete with them or want to help provide medical treatments for reasonable prices you're not allowed and you know a year and a half into this thing they never really expanded capacity at all i mean that is just you can sit here and complain about socialized health care all day long but that seems like a problem of fascized health care to me you know what we have in america now which is the kind of thing that socialists point to and say well that's why capitalism doesn't work and they kind of have a point if and this is why so many libertarians become anarchists like immediately, right? Because you got to admit, business will bribe government to act in exactly contrary to the way that the market would, would provide, right? To protect supply from the forces of the market. And then as libertarians, we know, well, what are you going to do? Give up property and prices in exchange? No. So you got to give up the state, Right. But otherwise, because we know businessmen will bribe the state into screwing their customers. And here we are, you know. But I really think that going back to talking about local politics is local politics is the answer to all that. And you could just start. 
you could just start if you had somebody bold enough, if you had a group of people bold enough, you could start deregulating all that stuff in your town. Yeah, you could just start saying, OK, well, you know, but we don't have the hospital capacity, so we're going to open up. We're going to have we have this rich guy, this elite guy over here who's pretty impressive. Open up a clinic across the street and get it opened up overnight. Yep. And you could do it. You could it. It would be easy to do. It would be easy to do. And. And it'd be great, especially if it was like in violation of the state law. Then like, good, come and prosecute me. You know, let's fight. Yeah, I mean, we know that the, you know, the corporate press at this point, they control the narrative and they could make him out to he or she out to be the worst person possible and everything. But you 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 start lining people up and getting um, giving testimonies about how they were cured and they were. You know, they were helped. You get a local pharmacist to just basically open and do, um, especially like generic stuff. Stuff is generic to get yeah. get that out, and get it easy. I mean, this is what it's. This is what is going to have to happen if they want to keep pushing this bull. This is what is going to have to happen. It's just going to have to be like, okay, we're going to just build what comes next. We're just going to forget about this system and we're just going to start building, and. I mean, really, it it's going to only really work locally, and then it can spread out, and you can have you can have a whole bunch of satellite cities that are working together and coming up with ideas. But I mean, there's how else are you going to do it? You know, that's the one thing that I mean. But he's got a lot of things right. But you know, Hoppe talking about basically decentralizing cities and privatizing everything, and that really that's the only way forward. Um, you know, 10,000 Liechtensteins in the United States functioning city states and um, with that are mostly private. It's really the only way. And honestly, it's the only thing that I could see in my lifetime actually working where you could actually have a taste of, okay, this is what this is what these guys, this is what Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe have been talking about for decades. And we're gonna get. We can get a little bit of a taste of it. Yeah. It's not gonna be. It's not gonna be the country falling apart. If the commies had one, if the tankies, if Lenin had anything right, if Engels had anything right, is if everything just falls apart at once, the people who own everything now are just gonna buy it back up, and they'll be right back in charge. The people beg them to be in charge. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to make it work. You're gonna have to do something, and you're gonna have to just build it. And really, it's just like building a company. You just got to do it right now. Pete is the very best time for this message. And you got people all across this nation who are just getting radicalized into politics right now. The baby boomers are all getting old and retiring and dying. And, you know, us Gen Xers, I don't know if anybody cares what we say, but I think, you know, the new generation of, you know, the millennial right, I think are perfectly primed to hear this message and to be, you know, essentially inculcated into Ron Paulian type Republicanism as opposed to the other kind. You know what I mean? So, and look again, after 20 years of just 30 years of abject failure, I mean, who could rally around the Bush family brand now, you know, who could say that? Yeah. What John McCain said, you know, that was the Republican party that we want to keep or whatever. Let, let Mitt Romney lead us into the brave new future. That's not where it's at. That's not where it's at. And if the Republican Party is going to survive, 
they're going to have to start emphasizing liberty and they're going to have to mean it. And then for the Mises Caucus and the Libertarian Party, I think that puts us in a great position where we can extort them and say, look, you know what? You guys aren't going to be perfect, but you are going to be perfect on this, this and this. Or we're going to run against you and do everything we can to weaken you and and whatever. And if that means that the Democrats win, well, that sucks for us as much as it sucks for you. But it'll be a lesson learned and we'll see in two years, you know, and then and and actually use the power of the Libertarian Party when it, you know, on the state level to split those votes to effect. You know, I met a guy one time, actually saw a speech by a guy. Said he was running for Senate against Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. So I guess this is in 2018. Yeah. And um, and he goes, guess what? I'm polling within the margin of error. And that means that whoever wins, I get to take credit for it. And that means that from now on, they'll have to do whatever we say and be terrified of us because they'll be afraid that we'll do that to them again. And so now the Republicans and the Democrats will only nominate like really good libertarian type Republicans and Democrats. And I'm like, wow, what a slippery slope argument of premises I don't accept. What if, but like, but there's something there, right? So like, for example, what if he had ignored Beto O'Rourke the whole time or had just, you know, made preliminary, um, you know, um, what you call it, um, disclaimers. They're like, oh, yeah, no, this guy Beto's horrible. Everybody knows that. But anyway, and then just focus on Ted Cruz and barbecue Ted Cruz. He calls himself a constitutionalist. Well, how do you explain this and this and this and this? He's a big government, big spending liberal, won't stand up for your gun rights and won't bring our troops home from the war. And, you know, all and just whatever. Right. And just attack him from the right and barbecue the, the shit out of him from the right. And then see if that hurts him, maybe. Right. And then if Beto O'Rourke wins the election, then you can claim credit for that. They're like, yeah, remember Republicans last time when we waged this massive defamation campaign against your candidate and it worked? Well, that's what happens when you piss us off. Now, here's our list of demands. If you want us to not do that to you next time. Now there's you got a plausible case, at least. And they might tell you to just go to hell. We don't care about you. We'll run your car off the road. Screw you. I don't know. We got Carl Rove figuring it all out for us next time. It'll be fine. But if you're going to have a chance of scaring them at all, if you're going to make them worry about you at all, you're going to have to really focus. And you're going to have to say, listen, you know, if Ted Cruz wants us to shut up, he's going to have to do the right thing on these things, you know, and then and and he's got to do them first, not promise. He's got to do what we say first and then we'll back off. What, it's just one example. But we could do that for governors. We can do that for senators, for attorney generals yeah, and whoever, you know. I've been saying that. You, Absolutely. You, you could do that in Florida the next election. You can go to DeSantis and you can say, like right now, and go, look, the Libertarian Party could go to him and go, we're going to run someone to the right of you. And we're going to steal, we're going to take all your votes unless you give us this, this, and this now. Right. Right now. And you just bribe them. Yeah, basically. I mean, you just I mean, and be cool at politics, first, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, make it a make it a friendly offer, right? Like don't don't go and and pick a fight where you don't have to. But like, yeah, if you could, if you could really make if it would really make a difference, then it's definitely worth doing that. And 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 
you know, I could see some hardcore libertarian party stalwarts saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's you like want to benefit Republicans or Democrats at the expense of the LP or whatever. But I don't really think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, when was the last time the LP candidate won for governor? Right. If we are going to ever win for governor, it's going to be because we made a name for ourselves doing cool shit like this and making it a, quite apparent to the people of our states that our party matters and what we say matters. And these Republicans and Democrats are right to be scared of us. You know, they should be. They, they, they're they right to take us seriously. Now everybody else should too. And so, you know, I don't... If we're talking about obstructing good Libertarian Party efforts by somehow compromising on behalf of other parties or something like that, that to me is a totally different question. I think people sometimes conflate those ideas. But I think we can... I think we absolutely can extort, especially the Republican Party... But in some circumstances, I bet we could extort the Democrats, too, where, you know, the libertarians are to the left of the Democrats on good things, you know, like on holding police accountable for killing people, for example, and, you know, a few other things like that. So, um, well, what you know. I told that Parnell, what I told um, Sean Parnell last night is I said, why are you running for Senate when you could run for governor, or even mayor of your hometown? Yeah. And you could run on the simple message of being anti-COVID everything, anti-COVID lockdown, anti-COVID mask, anti-COVID vaccine. You could run on a gun message. And you know, it, there are towns out there where the blue and the red are so squishy, a libertarian could run on that. And I'm talking about you're going to have to be it's going to have to be a tough libertarian. Sure. You know, I'm I'm not talking about someone with a bow tie, and and I like bow ties, but it's not someone with a bow tie. Somebody who is a veteran, maybe, you know, somebody who has a way about them, and is like, look, right. you elect me, and that we, it's not going to happen. This is not going to happen in this town, right. and people are just. I mean, do you know how many people have gotten elected on? two issues just running on two issues i mean look at trump what was trump's issue trump's issues was um immigration and trade in the wars yeah, yeah that's it and yeah. he got elected it's that simple yeah i mean and oh but it's populism it works sorry i'm sorry that it works you can be a libertarian populist ron paul was yeah there ain't nothing wrong with that i mean i I mean, as opposed to what, like libertarian elitism? I mean, right? <laughs> are you talking like to yourself in a room, man? That, that ain't going to get you anywhere. Like, it has to be populism. It has to be libertarianism for the masses. You know, absolutely. And um, and look, the the left and the right are all wet. I mean, it's not like they know what the hell they're doing. The centrist establishment has ruined everything, and people are moving to the further socialist left and the more nationalist, right? But that ain't the answer. It's liberty that's the answer to all of these things. So the time is right for, you know, people to hear our message for sure. And and so, you know, there's a lot to feel defeatist about in terms of how bad everything is going. But then also just like Rahm Emanuel and Condoleezza Rice agree, man, and every crisis is an opportunity. And you don't want to let one go to waste. And so right now there are a lot of people looking to us. So, okay, you're so smart. Then what one. should we do then? Well, now that you ask, actually, we thought about this and we got some ideas. Of it. And, it, and, it's, and here's the other thing, too, that I think makes it a lot easier, right? Is that we don't have this big program for all the stuff we want to do. We just have a big program for all this stuff we want to stop doing. And that, to me, sounds fair enough, right? I'm not trying to ask you, like, hey, we got to build a train 
for a new, you know, high speed train from San Diego to New York or whatever. It was, we're not doing that, man. We just want to stop the wars, stop the bailouts and the corrupt crony capitalism and the police state and the lockdowns and the drug wars and all the things that are, you know, tearing the society apart. And we'll, we'll start with all that first. And I think that's the kind of, you know, me and Dave Smith have been talking about this and going through like, this is exactly like what we want to focus on and what order and all these things. And he put out a tweet like that. He goes, listen, attention, liberty movement. You know, if we can all agree on the lockdowns, the wars, the bailouts and corruption and the police state and whatever the list, a few more in the list, then we ought to all be able to unite as the liberty movement. Liberty unite, hashtag, whatever the hell. And the first response to him said, hey, you don't have to be a libertarian to believe in that. And Dave goes, yeah, exactly. So first of all, here's something that all libertarians can agree on. And then secondly, this is something all Americans can agree on. And the libertarians are just right about all of it at the same time. You know, you might find a Democrat or Republican who's good on some of these things some of the time. We're good on all these things all the time. But that's the narrative. And I think especially with we're. Well, unless Trump is the nominee, I don't know. That throws everything completely in the, the air. But it seems like we're going to have a very weak Republican and Democrat candidate in 2024. They're not going to have a message at all, really. What's Kamala Harris going to run on in 2024? You know, steady as she goes or <laughs> whatever. Like, yeah. And then and, and we're going to have Dave and and, you know, dropping all of this stuff in a way where he will be. You know, obviously not the top vote getter, but he will be, I, I predict, the dominant force in the political discussion in 2024. And the agenda for politics on the presidential level in 2024 will be lockdowns and wars and bank bailouts and crony capitalism and the drug war and the police state and the militarization and the NSA spying and the, all the things that Dave says. This is what we Americans care about. And this is what we demand be stopped now. That is going to be the discussion in 2024 and the Libertarian Party and our presidential candidate and the Mises caucus and the Libertarian movement in, you know, in general, we're going to make it that way. And then and as you say, look, on the on the local elections, hey, we got a lot of local elections between now and 24, which means we could have a lot of people who are in power on the county judge level, the city council level, mayors and sheriffs and whoever like you're talking about who are all endorsing Dave from their newfound positions that they've been running for and winning on the local level as well and and supporting all of that. And frankly, like even if Trump gets the nomination um, and you have like the populist right, they're all going to vote for him in the end. You could still run a campaign on, yeah, but you ought to support Dave all the way up until Election Day then at least. Because don't you want Trump to be responsible to Dave Smith, not to Kamala Harris for whatever her attacks against him are? You you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. If Trump's going to have to bend, don't you want him to bend towards Smith and not toward Harris? Right. And so, like, I, I think there's just so much potential you know, for our entire movement from coast to coast and town and country and and local and state and national level politics. Now, I would not be surprised at all if we got libertarian members of the House of Representatives by the end of the decade, you know, one or two at least. Or and or, you know, Republicans who 
are good enough, you know, at, at trying to be Ron Paul facsimiles up there. And, you know, like Thomas Massey's pretty close. I'd rather be some governors, but um, yeah, well, I'd take that I like too. What you're saying. Yeah. yeah, but but you yeah. know what? Like even on your senator thing, not to quibble with you, but David Chipman is withdrawing his nomination to be ATF director because there are enough senators, enough Republican senators, who were like, "No, I'm not voting for this guy." They had to back down and take it down. Yeah. And you know, for people who don't know, he helped prosecute the surviving Branch Davidians, and you know, should have been exiled out of this country 25 years ago for that. But uh, anyway, at least he's not going to be the ATF director there. So, you know, all this stuff matters on all these different levels. I think one of the big problems in the libertarian movement now is there's kind of an unspoken premise that there's not enough of us to go around. But I don't think that that's right. You know, um, I think there are plenty of people to do free state stuff in New Hampshire and to do YAL stuff um, in their state legislatures and do libertarian party stuff on their city council and do a Dave Smith presidential run and complain on Twitter all day and, and, you know, run businesses and, and do all kinds of things. Um, be a donor for a pretty good Republican in your area that you can influence that like, look, man, I always give you a few thousand bucks cause I think you're pretty good, but man, you need to get over this Warhawk stuff or you need to get over this drug war stuff, whatever it is, you know, find your spot, make your difference. People used to get frustrated at Ron Paul they go, okay, Ron, I'm 100% down, dude. What do I do? And then he would always say the same thing. Do whatever you want, man. That's the whole thing is freedom. But the point was they didn't necessarily have a good idea of what to do. But then, but his idea was, yeah, but still, you're going to, you're just going to have to figure that out, you know, figure out where you fit in and, and where you can, or where you don't fit in, but you can wedge yourself in there and, and make a push and make a change. Um, so I'm really optimistic about where everything is now, if only just because uh, how screwed up everything is, Pete. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. You know? um, I don't really have anything else. So, um, yeah. Did you have anything? Uh, yeah. All I was going to say was um, this Saturday in D.C., I'm giving a protest. It's at John Marshall Park at noon on September 11th, and it's the End the Damn Wars protest. And it's supposed to be left wing and right wing and Libertarian Party people and hopefully Greens and whoever else. And then we're going to try to meet up with the Friends Committee um, and, you know, some other peace protests that are going on at that time right down there. So I have no idea how many people are going to come. I, I really hope that it's thousands and thousands and, and matters and looks good on YouTube later and things. I don't know what's going to happen, but, uh, you know, um, 20 years is almost unbelievable. So somebody's got to show up and mark the day. Um, yeah. You know, if we get nothing else out of it. And then um, that's it. Free Julian Assange. And see you guys next Thursday. Well, let's um, tell people, go to the YouTube, because I'm going to release this in audio version on oh, okay. my podcast. Yeah, that's a good so idea. So go to the Libertarian Institute page and subscribe, like this video, um, so we can start building it up and have a much better reach. We're going to... We talked about doing this weekly. We'll try to do it weekly, um, but at least bi-weekly. Yeah. And, oh, that's right. Um, I forgot I we talked about that. Yeah, every other week. Would be yeah. Good. So so we'll um, try and build this up and even bring other people on because there's a lot of people at the Institute that are uh, that know a lot of things that we don't. Yeah, man. And, you know, yeah, we should really end with that is, you know, 
the crew at the Libertarian Institute, our editor, Hunter Dorensis, our um, executive editor, of course, Sheldon Richmond, and news editor, Kyle Anselone. And then, of course, um, we got our great group of podcasters. Me and Pete each have our own podcast, of course. Kyle and Will Porter do Conflicts of Interest. And then uh, Keith Knight and Patrick McFarlane each have their own uh, podcast. And then Tommy Salmons as well, uh, our great trucker friend uh, podcast. And I guess sometimes from the road out there. Um, so, yeah, and we got a bunch of great writers, too. Lori Calhoun and Kim Robinson. And, um, you know, I don't know whatever happened to uh, good old what's-his-name was writing for us. Uh, Bradley, uh, Bradley Thomas. Kind of fade oh, away. I need to yeah. find him again. Um, Connor Freeman is another great one, and um, so lots of great stuff uh, to read and to listen to there at libertarianinstitute.org, and including right, this man. show. Thank you, brother. All right, cool. See you next time, man.